NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. In Southeast Asia, a deadly strain of avian influenza seems to be mutating and now could be spreading from person to person and nation to nation. The outbreak has public health officials fearing the start of a global flu pandemic. When we think of flu, we generally think of something which keeps us off work for a day or two. I mean, this influenza is uh, its a very horrible infection because probably none of us have any immunity to this type of virus. Coming up, a doctor on the front lines in the battle against avian flu. And here we go again. The White House launches a new offensive to open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil drilling. Opponents counterattack. And what we're very worried about is if you do it here, then what about all the other wildlife refuges? They're going to be next. And why the Super Bowl won't be a guess this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. In an average year, 20,000 Americans die from the flu. Last year, in Southeast Asia, just 36 people died from a new strain called avian influenza. But it's this bird flu, known as H5N1, that keeps public health officials up at night. Because like a nightmare, they worry that their worst fears are about to come true. There's evidence the avian flu, first discovered in 1997, is no longer transmitted just from birds, ducks and chickens, to people, but has mutated and can now spread person to person. Ground zero of this year's outbreak is Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Dr. Jeremy Farah is director of the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases there. Dr. Farah, thank you very much for joining us. Hello. Hello. It's good to speak to you. Dr. Farah, in your hospital, you're seeing patients with avian flu, right? Yes, we started a few weeks ago now. We, we actually don't have any patients. Uh, we haven't had any patients for, for a few days now, so one could be optimistic and think that maybe we've seen the worst of it. But certainly going back for the last month or so, we've had a, a steady stream of patients with H5N1, as you describe. Well, are you optimistic? Um, by nature, I'm, yeah, I'm very optimistic. I, I think your introduction was very fair. I think there are often mass or major worries in terms of global health, and, and often it's crucial to keep these in perspective. I, I think the greatest fear facing the world in terms of a major outbreak is influenza. The devastation of 1918, the 1950s, and the 1960s, when millions of people died from this disease, teaches us that it's very likely to occur again in the 21st century. The only thing I would take a little bit of issue with in the introduction um, is the case of the human-to-human transmission. Clearly, that is the crucial factor. The, the virus does go between poultry. Uh, the crucial issue is whether when one human being gets it, whether he or she is capable of passing it to another. And as you quite rightly say, uh, there has been a report of a case from Thailand where it seems very clear that a, a child passed it to the mother. I, I think that was a special case, that the mother was very intimately involved with caring for the child in the last few hours of its life and, and had very extensive exposure to the child. I think we're not in a situation at the moment where the virus transmits between humans with any degree of efficiency. Um, if that were to occur, in other words, the virus was then able to go from 
you to me or me to you or from somebody to somebody else, then that is, a, is really a, a terrible scenario where, where we will see many, many uh, million people die, I suspect, if that were to happen. The influenza outbreak in, in 1918, the Spanish flu, is now seen to be avian flu. Is, am I correct? Uh, essentially, yes, yeah. So is that the flu that we now have? No, it's not, but it's very close. The avian flus are, occur in chickens, they occur in ducks. Chickens get sick with it. Uh, often ducks are not very sick with it. In fact, uh, can display no symptoms at all. When it jumps into humans, it's very, very nasty virus. It causes a, a huge amount of destruction of the lung tissue. And uh, when we think of flu, we, we generally think of, of something which keeps us off work for a day or two. I mean, this influenza is, is, is unbelievably unpleasant. Uh, it's a very horrible infection because probably none of us have any immunity or very limited immunity to this type of virus, uh, which is why the available flu vaccines won't work to protect you against this infection. I understand that there was a woman, a Cambodian woman, who uh, came to Vietnam and uh, died of the disease. She was seeking medical attention. Uh, and then some other members of her family uh, may have gotten the disease, too. And the suggestion there is because of the timeline is that, in fact, it was human-to-human -human contact. The case from Cambodia, I think, remains unclear at the moment whether this represents common exposure or human-to-human -human transmission. It's absolutely crucial to know the difference between those two. You have to remember that many people in, in Cambodia and Vietnam live live very closely with their poultry uh, in the house or in the yard at the back of their house, and multiple members of families may well be exposed to the virus at the same time. It's not just in, in birds. It's in uh, domestic cats, uh, leopards. Yes, it seems to... Uh, the, one of the most worrying features over the last few years is its apparent ability to have spread in terms of the animals that it can infect. So what maybe used to only infect chickens and ducks now seems to be able to infect cats. Uh, as you say, there was leopards in Thailand that were affected, different varieties of birds, so not just chickens and ducks, but also uh, wading birds and migrating birds. Uh, and that, of course, is an enormous worry because it's difficult enough to control a chicken population where chickens are farmed or kept by households, but to control birds that migrate is impossible, as America's found out, with the spread of West Nile, which are being carried probably by migrating birds. I understand they've begun culling, killing uh, these these ducks and chickens in the city there. Yeah, that's right. There's been a mass media campaign, and the Vietnamese government have announced in Ho Chi Minh City that all ducks are to be culled uh, as soon as possible. This week, it's, it's the uh, Tet New Year. It's the year of the rooster, ironically, and... and I understand that in Vietnam, there's a lot of eating of duck and chicken. Yeah, there would normally be at Tet. It, it, Tet is a major festival here. I, I guess it, the, the closest thing it comes to would be Thanksgiving in the States. I mean, it's a, it's a great occasion, and it's one which is very important in the Vietnamese cultural life. And, of course, chicken and ducks are both a major feature of that usually, but uh, certainly not this year. I've not seen any chicken or duck being served as part of Tet celebration so far, and I'm, I'm sure they won't be. So what is the atmosphere on, on the streets of uh, Ho Chi Minh City now? It is, it is worrying. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's very worrying, and, and 
Everybody knows about it. School children know about it. People are going into schools to educate people about it. But life goes on, and uh, I think banning chickens and ducks from the city has been a major step forward. People are getting ready for Tet and desperately hoping that this disappears. As you know, the, the virus particularly likes colder weather, and it actually is quite cold in Vietnam at the moment. Hopefully, as the warmer weather comes in the next month or so, we will see less, uh, fewer cases. But yes, everybody is talking about it. It's in the newspapers daily, and there is great concern. But the Vietnamese are incredibly phlegmatic people and uh, tend to take things in their stride. Dr. Jeremy Farah is director of the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Dr. Farah, thank you very much. Stay well. Okay, and you. Thanks. For the second year in a row, President Bush made a national energy policy one of the priorities in his State of the Union address, urging lawmakers to pass the energy bill that has languished in Congress since 2001. Four years of debate is enough. I urge Congress to pass legislation that makes America more secure and less dependent on foreign energy. Well, among the items on the president's wish list for energy is the desire to drill for oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR for short. It's become something of an environmental battle royale. And here to discuss it with us is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent, Jeff Young. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Bruce. Uh, this debate over drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Reserve um, it's been around. It's been defeated three times. Uh, I don't get it. Three strikes, you're out. How come this bill keeps on coming back? Well, they're hoping to get uh, some leverage. That is, the pro-drillers think they can get more mileage out of the newly expanded Republican majority, especially in the Senate, where they think they've picked up about four pro-drilling votes in last year's elections. And also, they feel momentum from this uh, push from the president to increase the domestic energy supply and cut down on imports. I spoke with uh, Alaska's Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski about that, and she says if we want to do that, that's going to mean getting more oil out of Alaska and Anwar. We have been delivering oil to the rest of the country now from Alaska's North Slope for 30 years. And we have been doing it with an environmental record that is stellar. We believe that we can do the same with Anwar. So we are very concerned that we do this right. And we are very certain that we can do it environmentally sound. Of course, the opponents disagree with that. They say this is a calving ground for caribou and migratory birds use it. But this time, Jeff, the uh, oppositions, they've got a really tough fight on their hands. Well, their numbers are reduced, but they're not giving up by any means. In fact, I'd say they've uh, stepped up their opposition here. Uh, Connecticut Democrat Joe Lieberman introduced a bipartisan bill in the Senate calling for full wilderness protection for the refuge. And as far as this notion of using ANWR to sort of wean us off of foreign oil, well, Lieberman uh, told a rally on the Capitol grounds that, according to one study, the oil out of ANWR would cut our imports by only about 2%. Let me ask you this question. Is that 2%? worth forever losing one of the most beautiful wild places in America in the world? No! no! 
that's the right answer. <laughs> and Lieberman's argument is we do a lot more to reduce foreign oil by conserving instead. Hmm. Well, the oil companies must really be pushing for this. I mean, oil's, what, bumping around 50 bucks a barrel now? Well, you'd think that, wouldn't you? But there's this odd trend afoot where some of the major oil companies that stand to benefit most seem to be losing interest in the lobbying effort to open up Anwar. ConocoPhillips last month rather quietly pulled out of the main pro-drilling lobbying group called Arctic Power. Uh, BP, another company, had already given up on that group, and that leaves just ExxonMobil to lobby for access to Anwar. Hmm. So wait, companies that would reap the profits from drilling in the refuge are no longer lobbying for access? What's going on? Well, that's what I asked Faudel Gate about this. Uh, Faudel Gate is an energy analyst with the brokerage firm Oppenheimer and Company, and he says as these oil companies get bigger and bigger, the gains from something like Anwar look smaller because they can go do business somewhere else. So basically, uh, they are saying that we spent all this time and effort, and we all we got is a black eye, and we don't need that. We don't need the bad public image. In a word precedent. Winning here in Anwar could pave the way for more access to oil and gas drilling in other protected areas. Or at least that's what the drilling opponents, like Democratic Senator Barbara Boxer of California, think is going on. You can't have a wildlife refuge and drill in it. And what we're very worried about is if you do it here, then what about all the other wildlife refuges? They're going to be next. Hmm. So, Jeff, how is this likely to play out in Congress this time? Well, that's the big question, and the real battle is in the Senate, where drilling opponents can still mount a filibuster. The pro-drillers uh, are looking for a way to win this on a simple majority vote. They might be able to do that by attaching something to a budget resolution. So I'd say watch the budget, and those talks start any day now as the president sends his budget up to the Hill. Follow the money, huh, Jeff? That's always good advice, I think. Thanks a lot. Jeff Young is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent. Jeff, thank you. You're welcome. Coming up, an expedition to the fourth world. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. In the wake of the tsunami that struck in December, killing so many people and destroying so much property, the government of Sri Lanka says it will start enforcing a law banning construction within 330 feet of water's edge. The move would force hundreds of thousands of people to relocate inland, but residents worry there may not be enough room for them. In central Sri Lanka, scarcity of land is already causing an unusual conflict. Due to logging and agriculture, the forest that is home to wild elephants is disappearing. Now, as Gina Wilkinson reports, hungry elephants searching for food are killing farmers trying to protect their crops. In the tiny jungle village of Veragala in central Sri Lanka, half a dozen locals gather at the communal water well. Women chat as they take turns pumping the rusty metal handle to bring water to the surface to wash their brightly coloured sarongs and saris. Today's main topic of conversation is the latest in a series of devastating raids by ravenous elephants. 55-year-old BG Bubby describes how a herd of about 25 elephants arrived two nights ago and destroyed five acres of the village rice paddy. Rice farming is the main source of income for the village, and BG Bubby says she doesn't know how they'll make ends meet after losing their crops to the elephants. We are very poor people, and we used all our money to buy seeds and fertilizer for the field. What do we do now? How will we live? We have nothing left. 
Not only are village rice paddies being decimated, in the past year one-third of the 150 homes in Viharagala have been damaged by elephants as well. Ajit is still rebuilding his home after it was attacked by a hungry pachyderm three months ago. An elephant came to my house around 11 o'clock at night. I think it was looking for food or perhaps fruit from the tree in my garden. It attacked my house and ripped the roof right off my kitchen. When I tried to scare it off with a torch, it ran next door and attacked my neighbor's house too. Farmers are not the only ones suffering. Elephants are also casualties in this conflict. At Pinawala Elephant Sanctuary, 60 miles southwest of Viharagala, a herd of trumpeting elephants heads down to the Mahaweli River for their afternoon bath. Elephant handlers, known as mahouts, are armed with five-foot-long metal-tipped spears and warn curious tourists to keep their distance from the potentially dangerous pachyderms. Many of these animals are wild elephants brought into this government-run sanctuary for medical treatment. SRB Disanayaka is an ecologist with the Sri Lankan Wildlife Department. He says many of the elephants here were attacked by farmers desperate to prevent the animals destroying their livelihoods. With the nightfall they come out and raid crops. It's like opening a supermarket for elephants. So then they come into conflict with people. Usually 140 to 160 elephants are killed annually. And that means three elephants per week and uh, one human, that's the rate. The elephant is a national symbol and highly revered in Sri Lanka, but over the past three decades, rapid population growth and deforestation have gradually caused conflict between pachyderms and humans. Forest cover has fallen from 44% to almost half that amount in just 50 years, with close to 100,000 acres lost annually to logging and land clearing for agriculture. New villages are springing up in what was once elephant territory. With Sri Lanka's population expected to double within 30 years, pressure on the pachyderm's natural habitat is set to rise even further. Ecologist SRB Disanayaka says many Sri Lankans are conflicted about their troubles with elephants. It is a Buddhist country. The people do not, uh, people don't like to kill animals because killing is prohibited according to our our religion. They don't kill animals, but Sometimes they are compelled to kill because of uh, the anger they have, the, because they lose their way of living because of these elephants. A century ago, Sri Lanka had more than 12,000 wild elephants. Now that figure is estimated to be as low as 3,500. The government has tried to set aside elephant habitat by making several protected national parks. It's recently built new waterholes and encouraged the growth of indigenous plants to attract and keep elephants inside the reserves. But it's believed that 70% of elephants live outside these protected zones in areas also inhabited by farmers. The Wildlife Department is also planning special wilderness corridors to allow pachyderms to travel from one protected nature reserve to another without passing through villages and farmland. Another proposal calls for building electric fences around some of the most vulnerable farming communities. Lower cost solutions are being tested in villages like the Herigala.
Instead of turning to guns and poison, villagers in Viharagala are now using large bells, supplied by the Millennium Elephant Foundation, to scare away roaming pachyderms. Long ropes allow villagers to ring the bells from inside their houses when they see or hear the animals approaching. And since most elephant attacks occur at night under the cover of darkness, the Herigala is particularly vulnerable because most homes don't have power and there's just one streetlight for the whole village. Lynn Burnett, a volunteer with the Millennium Elephant Foundation, says they hope to reduce this problem by building an environmentally friendly biogas plant. The villagers will be putting in elephant dung, cattle dung and human, other human wastes um, and then that decomposes, produces the gas which is collected within the cylinder. Um, the gas that's collected will be used to either fuel three lamps which will burn each for four hours or one lamp that burns for ten hours. The villagers can also use the sludge produced by the biogas plant as fertiliser for their crops and vegetable gardens. Back at the Penawala Elephant Sanctuary, tourists watch a massive six-tonne elephant tear leaves and branches from a tree. It's easy to see how he could destroy a field of crops in just a few hours. The 60-year-old bull is almost blind. Veterinarians suspect his eyes were damaged by a blast from a farmer's gun. Wildlife experts believe more pachyderms are likely to suffer a similar fate and the problem of human-elephant conflict won't be solved overnight. But officials, as well as villagers and conservation groups, hope they're now on track to find a long-term balance that protects both farmers and the country's revered elephants. For Living on Earth, this is Gina Wilkinson in central Sri Lanka. Now to Liberia, where in 1999, William Powers traveled to the West African nation to take over as director of projects for Catholic Relief Services. Powers was fresh out of graduate school and filled with idealism and a healthy dose of fear. Seven years of a bloody civil war had ripped Liberia apart, and the next seven years of so-called peace under then-President Charles Taylor weren't much better. Still, Powers believed in his mission to fight poverty and save Liberia's rainforest. He spent two years there trying to teach Liberians to live sustainably, but it was the lessons he learned about what he calls the fourth world that endure. William Powers has chronicled his experience in Liberia in a new book, Blue Clay People, Seasons on Africa's Fragile Edge. Mr. Powers, how's the body? Uh, body fino. <laughs> You really have a, a voice in this book that really captures the sounds of the people from Liberia. That's right. Uh, the Liberian English is actually a mixture of African dialects and you know, English from the American South. Th that's because Liberia was formed from American freed slaves. It's uh, America and Africa. Um, it's our quasi-colony, the only one we actually set up in Africa. And um, you hear in the... For example, around Christmas time, people will say compliments of the season, which comes, I think, right out of the 1800s in the States. And, you know, the country was set up by former American slaves um, as a way of going back to Africa. So there's a, a good sense of it being sort of a part of ourselves. You write very passionately at the, at the beginning of the book about your first impressions. And I wonder if you could share those with us. Well, one of the first impressions was just driving from the airport into Monrovia, you're going along this road 
where all the telephone poles have been decapitated and the wires are hanging out like spaghetti just coming out of the poles. And then you end up in the downtown area of this capital city, which is just a bombed out area, you know, um, buildings that are just falling to the ground and marked with uh, mortar shells. And yet against this background of total human devastation is the most brilliant ocean, palm trees everywhere, a lush kind of jungle that's right there coming out of every possible crack in the city. And then of course, arriving at my house at Carolina Farms, where I went through the gates and it was just this beautiful compound of vias, like a, like Italian vias on this river that empties into the Atlantic and people with pet chimpanzees and a kind of bizarre new colonial world that I never had even dreamed of when I signed up to work with CRS in Africa. It's kind of ironic that here you've got this country that, you know, was of freed American slaves and yet you're returning back to basically a, a plantation system. Well, that's the interesting thing. I mean, historically, the former slaves that went back established a kind of a black-on-black apartheid system that was one of the worst the world's ever seen. It's almost like South Africa's. Um, The true Whig party, which was these Americo-Liberians, the ones who were former slaves, reestablished antebellum sort of master-servant relationships, and they had, they'd sit on, they'd build these houses, just like in the American South, which you can still see today in Liberia, with fireplaces. I mean, who needs a fireplace in the tropics? And um, they would sit on their wraparound porches and watch the 99% indigenous Africans work their plantations. And interestingly enough, actually, um, Liberia was brought to charges on slavery in the 1920s by the League of Nations, um, and it toppled their president and vice president. They were actually accused internationally of, of slavery. So in a sense, when I arrive there, I mean, you just fall right into the top of that pyramid. You know, you're at the top of the hierarchy. You're now part of that master class. And everyone kind of looks at you in that way. We're all familiar with the, the term, you know, third world countries, but you write about the fourth world. What do you mean? That's right. Yeah, the fourth worlds. Um, that's a term that I coined for the countries that are not just poor, but the ones that are completely unstable environmentally devastated, you know, the ones where Pandora's box has been opened and just can't be closed. I'm talking about the frontiers of anarchy, countries like Myanmar, like Sierra Leone, Liberia, um, Sudan, maybe even now Iraq. But here you've got a country that's been cursed by, you know, murderous, maniacal dictators and yet blessed by natural resources, in particular, this vast rainforest. Yes, uh, Liberia is a just absolute garden of Eden. It's got one of the the largest percentages of rainforests, virgin rainforests anywhere in the world. I would watch, um, you know, pygmy hippos tobogganing into rivers, just gorgeous rainforests rising up into the canopy and howler monkeys and all kinds of wildlife. It's just incredible. And the UN has a ban on the export of timber from the rainforest. Yeah, that's right. They. Uh, we're calling it conflict timber because when I was there during Charles Taylor's uh, regime, he was actually trading timber for weapons and supplying the RUF in Sierra Leone. And of course, they were the famous people who chopped off you know, people's limbs to terrorize them. So ironically, not only was the country being just deforested at an incredibly fast rate, but it was also contributing to destabilizing the region. There is a, a success story, however, in your book, and you talk about Chief Wah, 
uh, a guy who experiments with with fish. Yeah, he was a wonderful um, chief down by uh, Sapo National Park, where I worked, Liberia's only national park, and uh, he was able to transform secondary bush into a veritable paradise of multi-story agriculture and um, fish farming, um, you know, contouring different ways of preserving the land while saving the rainforest that were right around his his village. And, you know, what he told me, he said, I don't need to go into the bush and I don't need to slash and burn anymore because I'm producing everything right here. Why was he successful? That's a really good question. He was one of the so-called master farmers that I work with. He wasn't very educated, but like a lot of Liberians, he was innovative and optimistic and he was able to adopt these technologies. I think part of the reason also was that we came up with a song. Uh, everything in Liberia, in the rural villages, is tied to singing and playing music and so on. And I think what really had it take was the fact that we developed a song for, for swamp rice and for working in aquaculture. And you know, once they had a song, everyone went out in the swamp fields and started harvesting rice and so on. It's kind of a beautiful thing to see. What do we need to do to preserve the rainforest in Liberia? All the first world governments in, as far as I know, have prioritized saving, you know, the last great rainforest on earth, not just the conservation groups. So Liberia is maybe almost half pristine rainforest. So what I would suggest is that we set that aside as a UN biosphere reserve. Liberia needs stability and you know, we need these rainforests, so let's make a trade. Let's do a quid pro quo and commit to Liberia for 20 years. And I'm talking about bringing piped water to a couple of cities, bringing some electricity to the country, and committing to education, because I think education is important for breaking the cycles of violence that have existed there. And in return, we receive the kind of benefits that rainforests give us. So I think it would be a fantastic move for President Bush to go for a what I would call a, a peace for nature swap. You know, we help bring peace to Liberia, and they hand over a good portion of their country to to humanity. Mr. Powers, you're still an idealist. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I think that I am still an idealist. Mr. Powers, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was really great talking with you. Thank you. William Powers is author of Blue Clay People, Seasons on Africa's Fragile Edge. Just ahead, this year's Super Bowl gets to the root of an environmental problem. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. To catch a glimpse of your favorite celebrity, you may be willing to spend a few dollars on a glossy magazine. Turns out, monkeys see, monkey do, too. 
researchers at Duke University have discovered that male rhesus monkeys will give up a portion of their favorite fruit juice to look at images of a female's hindquarters or view socially dominant monkeys, the same way humans pay for a peek. Neurobiologists offered male rhesus monkeys a choice. Take a large portion of cherry juice, or take a smaller portion and get the chance to look at photos of other monkeys. On average, the monkeys would forego 8-10% to of their juice allotment if the researchers let them view the faces of powerful males or a female's derriere. But the monkeys had to be bribed with larger amounts of juice to get them to stare at subordinate males. Researchers say weighing the value of social interactions among animals could help understand human behavior, specifically of people with autism who lack the motivation to connect with other humans. They add the study may also help us understand people's fascination with gossip magazines and our ongoing obsession with Hollywood. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jennifer Chu. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Argosy Foundation Contemporary Music Fund, supporting the creation, performance, and recording of new music. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, from vision to innovative impact, 75 years of philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Okay, quick. What comes to mind when you hear the words Super Bowl and green in the same sentence? All those greenbacks the game generates in ad revenues? The color of the field, maybe. Or perhaps the Green Bay Packers, who lost in the first round of the playoffs. You probably didn't think of greenhouse, as in greenhouse gases that contribute to global warming. But that's exactly what NFL officials are thinking. They plan to go carbon neutral, offsetting all the greenhouse gases generated at this year's big game in Jacksonville, Florida. Joining us from Jacksonville is Jack Grow. He's the NFL's Director of Environmental Programs. Hi, Jack. Hi, Bruce. How are you? I'm well, thanks. But I didn't even know that the NFL had environmental programs. Yeah, we've been doing this for about uh, 12 years. Uh, not the carbon neutral, but we've had environmental initiatives with Super Bowl uh, going back about 12, 13 years now. So what kind of things do you do? Well, originally, we just started with uh, solid waste management recycling. We, we wanted to recycle as much of the waste as we could from our uh, facilities. And then we started to add other programs. Tell me about this carbon neutral program. We, we tinkered around with the idea for about a year, and we looked at it in Houston last year, but we weren't satisfied that we had the, the information in place to do it. So we went and did some research and, and looked into uh, how we could uh, mitigate all the greenhouse gas produced. As you know, every human activity produces some greenhouse gas, and we got a lot of humans and a lot of activity. So we figured we'd, uh, we'd uh, get involved in that. How much greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, do you, do you actually get out of a Super Bowl? Well, the major sources uh, that, that we measured uh, were somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000 tons of CO2, and uh, I think that's about 2 million pounds. How did you get those figures? I mean, how did people at a Super Bowl generate all that carbon dioxide? Well, the, the two primary sources we found, Bruce, were um, 
uh, transportation and um, and utility usage. Uh, utility usage is obviously the stadium uh, because the stadium wouldn't be up and running if Super Bowl wasn't here. Uh, there, there wouldn't be another game there. Um, the NFL Experience Football Theme Park, which is about a one million square foot uh, theme park that that the uh, that we build here uh, in each Super Bowl city, it's a temporary uh, theme park. That's the other major source of. Uh, so so those are the two big sources uh, of uh, uh, utility usage usage that wouldn't be here without Super Bowl. And then of course transportation. There's the normal cars that are in Jacksonville anyway. We weren't concerned about that. What we were concerned about was all the fleets of vehicles, whether it's buses or limos or vans or staff cars that we bring into the city. Uh, so we identified that as the other big source of carbon dioxide. How do you get rid of it? Um, we looked at a couple of different ideas. One was uh, emissions credit trading. That just didn't seem to fit what we wanted to do with it. And then uh, it was one of those flat forehead moments, you know, where you take your, 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 the palm of your hand, hit it against your forehead, and go, why didn't I think of that before? Duh. And uh, <laughs> Right, one of those, a Homer Simpson moment. And we realized planting trees was the, was the way to go. So we hooked up with all the right people here in uh, Jacksonville, and then we went and did the research to get the figures, you know, how many trees and what we needed to do to actually mitigate all that carbon. How did the trees, you know, neutralize it? Well, the, the, the trees, a certain percentage, and again, I'm, I'm not one of the scientists, so we went to the scientists um, uh, to get this uh, figured out, uh, uh, you know, what we needed, how many trees, uh, this and that. These guys made sure we didn't get led astray as far as, you know, we're, what we were doing, we wanted it to be valid. We didn't want it to just be good intentioned. We wanted, we wanted it to be, to be a, a, a scientifically valid as well. The, uh, the folks at Princeton University Carbon Mitigation Center uh, told us once we provided them with the figures on carbon dioxide, uh, according to their calculations, it takes about uh, one acre of trees to absorb about, you know, roughly about 70 tons of carbon dioxide. I'm sorry, I said carbon dioxide. It's actually 70 tons of carbon locked up because we're not too worried about the oxygen. I mean, like you, I like oxygen. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the carbon that causes the problem. It keeps me going. <laughs> yeah. So uh, have you planted any trees? Yeah. yeah uh, two weeks before Super Bowl, we did, um, we did a, a big planting at University of North Florida. They provided us with about two acres of uh, land on their campus. And then volunteers, college students came, people from the community came, and we planted a, about, give or take a couple, we planted about 1,000 trees on two acres. Did Tom Brady or uh, Andy Reid pitch in? No, no, those guys weren't in town yet. <laughs> no. Jack, since this is CO2, carbon dioxide, it's seemingly, or scientists tell us, related to global warming. Is, mm -hmm. is this the NFL telling us um, we're doing our bit for, to prevent global warming? Well, that's part of it, too. That, that's a message that, that we like to send out. And since people watch the NFL uh, closely... You know, other event organizers and planners and managers look at what we do in Super Bowl because Super Bowl is the pinnacle of, of special events. It's, it's the biggest and, and uh, uh, most comprehensive special event in the world each year. Uh, other people look at it and see how we manage our events. So it's a good way for us to send that message too and have folks look at us and say, well, the NFL thinks that this is a good way to manage events. Maybe, uh, maybe we should look into it too. And I thought it was just another football game. <laughs> well, we have that too. There is a football game, by the way. I don't. We don't want to lose that. Jack, thank you very much. Thank you, Bruce. Pleasure to chat with you. Jack Rowe is the NFL's director of environmental programs.
What would you do if a 60-ton dead animal showed up in your community? Okay, granted, it's not likely to happen to you, but that's just what happened to the people of Lubeck County, Maine. They had to figure out, and quickly, what to do when one day a giant finback whale washed up on their shores. Producer Molly Menschel sent us this audio postcard she calls Just Another Fish Story about how the good citizens of Lubeck handled their whale of a problem. The story about the whale. The story about the whale, see? I understand it's a fish story and all this stuff. It is a big fish. But what happened years ago here in Lubeck, Maine? There was a whale got tangled up in the fisherman's lines way off, somewhere off a quarter head. You're way out to sea then, see? And it drifted into shore. It just couldn't swim. You know, the tide carried it in and it landed on the beach over here in Lubeck. Not too far from here, see? I saw it. I was down there. Oh, it was big. I couldn't tell you how long or... The whale was roughly 55 to 66. 56 and a half feet long. A 70-foot animal. That's almost the size of an 18-wheel truck. To me, it was huge. It was huge. It was huge. Laying down, it would be as high as this ceiling. It was the largest animal I ever saw. No wonder in the Holy Bible it says, Jonah went into the belly of the whale. Oh, there's plenty of room there. That mouth is a big one. It was laying there right on top of the beach. And it was laying on its side. I remember it was blackish, grayish color. He color. wasn't gray anymore. He wasn't grayish, blackish. It was it mostly was black, right? and, black white. and white. He was white, more whitish, grayish. And there was a lot of wounds on it, old scars. What it looked like was a vicious animal to me. I mean, it was a monster. But I wasn't frightened because it was dead. His mouth happened to be open. His mouth happened to be open. It was a dead fish, but his mouth happened to be open. It might have been uh, middle of August or so. Yeah, August, Can't September. Yeah, I can't. Sure, it, yeah. Evidently, it washed up in the night, and someone spotted it after daylight laying there on the beach. That was uh, early in the morning. The word had started to spread that this whale had washed ashore and people started coming in. I went down by myself, but there were plenty of people around. Oh, the first day when it washed up, I went down. Yeah, we took the kids down to see it. The little kids were running up to it and touching it. Climbing up on top of the whale, standing on it, and get the pictures taken. <laughs> Sold hot dogs or something. Made a little money. <laughs> I think people in a small town handle death in a different way. They have to deal with it a lot more often. Everybody knows everybody, so when someone dies, the whole town grieves. I actually went down there. It was coming on to sunset, and I sat on the beach and smoked a cigarette and bawled my eyes out. <laughs> yeah, that's what I done. And I, I never went back down. And we lived probably a thousand feet from the beach. The mystery in the whole thing is how we got there. Nobody knows if it died off in the bay and floated ashore, or whether it grounded itself out and died on the beach, or whether it just got confused. Nobody knows. It washed up on the beach. He got snarled up, could have been. I guess that's what happened to him, he drowned. get clear. You know, this is where it wanted to be. They called the Coast Guard to see if they could tow it back offshore and let it go some other town, <laughs> but they wouldn't do it. Because it had already been a couple other places, and that's what they'd done. They towed it out, and Lubeck finally wound up with it. There was no boats big enough. And depending upon the way the wind is blowing, when the current is running, some things are almost impossible to get rid of. I mean, this thing laid on the beach for days while the town was 
trying to determine whether they, how they were going to get rid of it. And it sat there. Just possible, but because government didn't know what to do. They were arguing. One branch of government arguing. It was too big to move. It couldn't move it. It couldn't do anything. We're a very poor town. We're the poorest county in the state of Maine, and that we would be the ones having to put the. In a small town, Lubeck, it was big doings. All the people in the town, in the town office, and the whole nine yards were all disturbed because, like any dead body, it began to smell, you know, it stink the town. A lot of people were saying, we got to move out of here on account of the odor from this whale, see? You could smell it. Low tide smells around here anyways, but this reeked of death. Rotten meat sat in the sun for a month. You just take the cover off the can, stick your head in there, and that's just what it smelled like. It was an oily... Greasy smell. It was right in your nose. Oh, it smelled like rotten. Rotten meat. fish and oil. They smelled, couldn't stand yeah. it. You know, when the wind was blowing that direction right on the you town. They could smell it from Everybody. miles away. As far away as Eastport, Maine, they could smell it. Oh, I touched it. Probably felt the same as what it did almost when it was alive. Cold. They're cold blooded. And it did have a funny feeling. The texture of the animal was. Big, big, smooth piece of rubber. I touched it with one finger, and I had to use less oil to it's get a stench the really hard to get off your hands. I put hand cleaner on my hands. I put straight gasoline. You have to wind up bleaching it off your hands, and that's what I wound up doing. And finally, they decided something had to be done about it. It would come to the point where no matter what it cost, it had to go. They knew <laughs> yeah, something had to be done. It had to be done. And they did something. One thing led to another, so they called Ramsell, a man named Ramsell. I was notified by the town of Lubeck. We contacted me to come down and dig a hole with that excavator. It was kind of a hazy, overcast day, and the sun didn't shine. I think there was like a crowd of 15 or 20 people actually showed up. There were a lot of people, maybe 100. Hundreds of people. Word spread fast. Everybody in town was there. But I just wondered, where are they all going, you know? So I went, too. So we dug a hole as close as we could. And before I got the hole dug, he accidentally slid on his own and went into the hole. Sort of graceful. I mean, it was so big, it just took its time. Just sort of the side caved in a little bit. He rolled in, and he slipped in and rolled up, belly up. When they finally rolled it into the hole, you know, everybody sort of quieted down. And they, they were kind of respectful. They were kind of sad to see it go. Oh, I don't know how to explain it. Something that you never think of, dying. You always hear stories that a, a whale is a passed-on fisherman's soul. Made me think how small I was, yeah. There's a lot of people who think, oh, I'm so big, I'm so great. No matter how powerful they are, something will happen in life that will cause people to say, how small am I anyway? We're both mammals who have reached the pinnacle of, of our place, and uh, they, they just seem to be close to us. I feel close to whales. And we buried it six feet over the top of it. Dug up gravel and stuff and covered it all over. And I've dug grave, you know, for humans here in Cutler also. So it just seemed different to bury something with no box. <laughs> it's putting raw earth right back onto his body. You picture him as being immortal, like a free soul, free will of there. You, you just don't see him dying. 
It, it was sad. It was very sad. And it took about two and a half hours, three hours to dig the hole and then fill it back in. And by noontime, we was all finished. I think I got like $300 buried with things. And then the town of Faber, actually. Maybe the whale, too. How do we know? It was just a day's work for me to, to help bury a whale. I mean, it was an oddity that to bury a whale. just something just weird that work. it happened and something unforetold. And if you never did see it, you couldn't understand it, you know what I mean? Yeah, the shadows, I know it's still there. He's still laying there. That's about all I can tell you about the whale. I haven't been down there since. Maybe I'll go down and take a stroll over. <laughs> That's the way things went. And uh, this is from Mars Allen and Ruback Man. Just another fish story. audio postcard Just Another Fish Story was produced by Molly Menschel, a recent graduate of the Salt Institute, a radio documentary project in Portland, Maine. At Living on Earth, we want to hear about your encounters with nature's creatures, dead or alive, and we invite you to send them to us. Just visit livingonearth.org for complete details. We'll tell you how to make a recording, which could be as simple as sitting down with a friend and talking into a tape recorder or picking up the phone like this listener did. My first interaction with a raccoon concerned her opinion of music on an all-night radio station. The radio was carefully placed in the garden with an outdoor extension cord and tuned to the most noisy and unpleasant station I could find. The intention was to discourage the raccoon from eating in the garden. The next morning I found the radio, a muddy paw print on each side of it, humming from the far side of the garden where the nocturnal diner had thrown the offensive item. To make sure I got the point, she left a turd on the radio. (laughs) Gee, I hope she wasn't tuned to NPR. So what's your story? We'll choose some of your recordings and post them on our website. We might even put it on the air. It's not a contest. There are no winners. There are no losers. It's simply a call for self-expression. Visit livingonearth.org for directions, sample submissions, and a chance to tell your story. Hey, Rocky, get off my mic. And we leave you this week along the coast of Maine, not far from Lubeck and its beached well. Lang Elliott recorded this flock of leeches storm petrels on Kent Island in the Bay of Fundy.
Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Christopher Bullock, Jennifer Chu, Ingrid Lobet, and Susan Shepard, with help from Kelly Cronin. Our interns are the Katies, Katie Oliveri and Katie Zemseth. Our technical director is Paul Wabrek. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Steve Kerwood's on vacation. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and cultured soy. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. This is NPR, National Public Radio.